We have reached the last chapter of A Little Princess. Thank you so much for joining me in reading and listening and performing this book. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that you have come to love Sarah, come to love Becky, and all of the circumstances surrounding her. I hope especially at this time, as you view your own circumstances, um, that you can see the opportunities to do good. Something I learned from Sarah is that even when we are at our worst, even when we're feeling the most down, we have the ability to make an impact for good. And not just a small impact, we could make a really great impact. So keep trying, keep going, and I'll see you at our next book. Bye-bye. It's time to say goodbye to Sarah. Are we ready? I don't know if I am. <laughs> the last chapter of A Little Princess. Here we go. <clears throat> chapter 19. Anne. Never had such joy reigned in the nursery of the large family. Never had they dreamed of such delights as resulted from to intimate acquaintance with the little girl who was not a beggar. The mere fact of her sufferings and adventures made her a priceless possession. Everybody wanted to be told over and over again the things which had happened to her. When one was sitting by a warm fire in a big glowing room, it was quite delightful to hear how cold it could be in an attic. It must be admitted that the attic was rather delighted in, and that its coldness and bareness quite sank into insignificance when Melchizedek was remembered. And one heard about the sparrows and things one could see if one climbed on the table and stuck one's head and shoulders out of the skylight. Of course, the thing loved best was the story of the banquet and the dream which was true. Sarah told it for the first time the day after she had been found. Several members of the large family came to take tea with her, and as they sat curled up on the hearth rug, she told the story in her own way, and the Indian gentleman listened and watched her. When she had finished, she looked up at him and put her hand on his knee. "'That is my part,' she said. "'Now won't you tell your part of it, Uncle Tom?' He had asked her to call him always Uncle Tom. "'I don't know your part yet, and it must be beautiful.' So he told them now, when he sat alone, ill and dull and irritable, Ram Dass had tried to distract him by describing the passer-by, and there was one child who passed oftener than anyone else. He had begun to be interested in her, partly, perhaps, because he was thinking a great deal of a little girl, and partly because Ram Das had been able to relate the incident of his visit to the attic in chase of the monkey. He had described its cheerless look and the bearing of the child, who seemed as if she was not of the class of those who were treated as drudges and servants, Bit by bit, Ram Das had made discoveries concerning the wretchedness of her life. He had found out how easy a matter it was to climb across the few yards of roof to the skylight, and this fact had been the beginning of all that followed. Sahib, he had said one day, 
I could see cross the slates and make the child a fire when she is not out on some errand, when she returned wet and cold to find it blazing, she would think a magician had done it. The idea had been so fanciful that Mr. Carrisford's sad face had lighted with a smile, and Ram Dass had been so filled with rapture that he had enlarged upon it and explained to his master how simple it would be to accomplish numbers of other things. He had shown a childlike pleasure and invention, and the preparations for the carrying out of the plan had filled many a day with interest which would otherwise have dragged wearily. On the night of the frustrated banquet Ram Dass had kept watch, all his packages being in readiness in the attic, which was his own, and the person who was to help him had waited with him, as interested as himself in the odd adventure. Ram Dass had been lying flat upon the slates, looking in at the skylight when the banquet had come to its disastrous conclusion. He had been sure of the profoundness of Sarah's wearied sleep, and then, with a dark lantern, he had crept into the room while his companion had remained outside and handed the things to him. When Sarah had stirred ever so faintly, Ram Dass had closed the lantern slide and laid flatten upon the floor. These and many other exciting things the children found out by asking a thousand questions. I am so glad, Sarah said. I am so glad it was you who were my friend. There were never such friends as these two became. Somehow they seemed to suit each other in a wonderful way. The Indian gentleman had never had a companion he liked quite as much as he liked Sarah. In a month's time he was, as Mr. Carmichael had prophesied he would be, a new man. He was always amused and interested, and he began to find an actual pleasure in the possession of the wealth he had imagined that he loathed the burden of. There were so many charming things to plan for Sarah. There was a little joke between them that he was a magician, and it was one of his pleasures to invent things to surprise her. She found beautiful new flowers growing in her room, whimsical little gifts tucked under pillows, and once, as they sat together in the evening, they heard the scratch of a heavy paw on the door, and when Sarah went to find out what it was, there stood a great dog, a splendid Russian boarhound with a grand silver collar and bearing an inscription in raised letters. I am Boris, it read. I serve the Princess Sarah. There was nothing the Indian gentleman loved more than the recollection of the little princess in rags and tatters. The, eve the afternoons in which the large family, or Ermengarde and Lottie, gathered to rejoice together were very delightful, but the hours when Sarah and the Indian gentleman sat alone and read or talked had a special charm of their own. During their passing, many interesting things occurred. One evening, Mr. Carrisford, looking up from his book, noticed that his companion had not stirred for some time, but sat gazing into the fire. "'What are you supposing, Sarah?' he asked. Sarah looked up, with a bright colour on her cheek. "'I was supposing,' she said. "'I was remembering that hungry day.' And a child I saw. But there were many hungry days, 
the Indian gentleman, with a rather a sad tone in his voice. Which hungry day was it? I forgot you didn't know, said Sarah. It was the day the dream came true. Then she told him the story of the bun shop and the fourpence she picked up out of the sloppy mud, and the child who was hungrier than herself. She told it quite simply and in as few words as possible, but somehow the Indian gentleman found it necessary to shade his eyes with his hands and look down at the carpet. And I was supposing a kind of plan, she said, when she had finished. I was thinking I should like to do something. What was it? said Mr. Carrisford in a low tone. You may do anything you like to do, princess. I was wondering, rather hesitated Sarah. You know, you say I have so much money. I was wondering if I could go to see the bun woman and tell her that if... When hungry children, particularly on those dreadful days, come to get something to eat, or sit on the steps, or look in the window, uh, she would just call them in and give them something to eat. She might send the bills to me. Could I do that? You shall do it in the morning, said the Indian gentleman. Thank you, said Sarah. You see, I know what it is to be hungry. And it is very hard when one cannot even pretend it away. Yes. Yes, my dear, said the Indian gentleman. Yes. Yes, it must be. Try to forget it. Come and sit on this footstool near my knee. And only remember that you are a princess. Yes, said Sarah, smiling. And I can give buns and bread to the populace. And she went and sat on the stool, and the Indian gentleman, he used to like her to call him that too sometimes, drew her small dark head down upon his knee and stroked her hair. The next morning, Miss Minchin, in looking out of her window, saw the thing she perhaps least enjoyed seeing. The Indian gentleman's carriage, with its tall horses, drew up before the door of the next house, and its owner, and a little figure, warm with soft, rich furs, descended the steps to get into it. The little figure was a familiar one and reminded Miss Minchin of days of the past. It was followed by another as familiar, the sight of which she found very irritating. It was Becky, who in the character of a delighted attendant always accompanied her young mistress to her carriage, carrying wraps and belongings. Already Becky had a pink round face. A little later the carriage drew up before the door of the baker's shop and its occupants got out, oddly enough, just as the bun woman was putting a tray of smoking hot buns in the window. When Sarah entered the shop the woman turned and looked at her and leaving the buns came and stood behind the counter. For a moment she looked at Sarah very hard indeed. And then her good-natured face lighted up. I'm sure I remember you, miss, she said. And yet... Yes, said Sarah. You once gave me six buns for four pence. And and you gave five of them to a bag of child. The woman broke in on her. I've always remembered it. I couldn't make it out at first. 
She turned round to the Indian gentleman and spoke her next words to him. I beg your pardon, sir, but there's not many young people that notices a hungry face in that way, and I've thought about it many a time. Excuse the liberty, miss, to Sarah, but you look rosier and, well, better than you did that. That I am better, thank you, said Sarah, and I... I am much happier, and I have come to ask you to do something for me. Me, miss, exclaimed the bond woman, smiling cheerfully. What bless you? Yes, miss, what can I do? And then Sarah, leaning on the counter, made a little proposal concerning the dreadful days and the hungry waifs and the hot buns. The woman watched her and listened with an astonished face. Well, bless me, she said again when she had heard it all. It'll be a pleasure for me to do it. I am a hard-walking woman myself and cannot afford to do much on my own account. And there's sight to trouble on every side. But, if you'll excuse me, I'm bound to say I've given away many a bit of bread since that wet afternoon. Just along a thinking of you. And how wet and cold you was, and how hungry you looked, and yet you gave away your hot buns as if you was a princess. The Indian gentleman smiled voluntarily at this, and Sarah smiled too, remembering what she had said to herself when she put the buns up down upon the ravenous child's ragged lap. She looked so hungry, she said. She was even hungrier than I was. She was starving, said the woman. Many's the time she told me of it since. As she sat there in the wet, felt as if a wolf was tearing at her poor young... Oh, have you seen her since then? exclaimed Sarah. Do you know where she is? Yes, I do, answered the woman, smiling good, more, more good-naturedly than ever. Why, she's in that there back room, miss, and has been for a month. And a decent, well-meaning girl she's going to turn out to be. And such an help to me in the shop and the kitchen, as you'd scarce believe, knowing how she's lived. She stepped to the door of the little black parlour and spoke. And the next minute a girl came out and followed her behind the counter. And actually it was the beggar child, clean and neatly clothed, and looking as if she had not been hungry for a long time. She looked shy, but she had a nice face, and now that she was no longer savage-looking, and the wild look had gone from her eyes, she knew Sarah in an instant, and stood and looked at her as if she could never look enough. "'You say,' said the woman, "'I told her to come in when she was hungry,' And when she'd come, I'd give her old jobs to do. And I found she was willing. And somehow I got to like her. In the end of it was, I've given her a place and a home. And she helps me and behaves well. And is as thankful as a girl can be. Her name's Anne. She has no other. The children stood and looked at each other for a few minutes. And then Sarah took her hand out of a muff and held it out across the counter. And Anne took it 
and they looked straight into each other's eyes. I am so glad, said Sarah, and I have just thought of something. Perhaps Mrs. Brown will let you be the one to give the buns and bread to the children. Perhaps you would like to do it because you know what it is to be hungry too. Yes, miss, said the girl. And somehow Sarah felt as if she understood her, though she said so little, and only stood up still and looked and looked after her as she went out of the shop with the Indian gentleman, and they got into the carriage and drove away. The end. Oh, let's say goodbye to them. Starring as Sarah Crew, Miss Laura Hills. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the part of Sarah. <laughs> Starring as Miss Minchin with a very melodic voice, Laura Hills. Thank you very much. And now to say goodbye to her quite ridiculous sister, Amelia. Goodbye. And now to say goodbye to Ramdas. Thank you. It was very good to try this voice and to see such a wonderful man being portrayed in this book. And to say bye to Lavinia, even though she's a total brat and we hate her. And to say bye to Becky. We love little Becky and we're so glad that Sarah thought of her too and that Becky has her own wonderful happily ever after. And of course, of course we can't forget Ermengarde. Poor little thing, Ermengarde. <laughs> and of course, from the very beginning, Ralph Crewe. If you wonder where the inspiration from his voice came from, think of a news television program from the early 50s. <laughs> Can I think of anyone else? Uh... Oh, there was the, the biker. She was a brat. Who am I missing? A little Lottie who had a little lisp. Sometimes it'll go have a little lift, but now that's okay. Oh, one of my other favorite ones. Um, Mr. Carmichael. Mr. Carmichael, I feel like you can hear his sighs just in his voice. Can you imagine for me a big white mustache? Can you imagine? And just the size of it makes his voice. He has to put a lot of air into the sound. Or... I remember the other voice who was quite like Mr. Carmichael, but I had to do my mouth a lot like this, which felt quite ridiculous. It was the solicitor of poor Mr. Ralph Crowe. Anyone else? I think that's it. <laughs> Isn't that so straight? Oh, goodbye, Sarah Crew. Goodbye, all the characters. Miss Minchin, I hope you learned your lesson. If you think you're a Miss Minchin, 
I hope you've learned your lesson. May we all be a little more like Sarah Crew. And I love how in the end, she was able to see that she didn't need to have all the money that she currently has to affect change. She affected change in that Baker woman and all the kids around her, even when she had no money. That's when the Baker woman saw her and the buns and the sixpence and the, or the fourpence and the six buns. And she saw her behaving like a princess and was inspired to take her in. Yes. And that was when she had no money. So now she has money and she's enacting all this wonderful change. But that was from when she had no money. And I think it was a, for me, it was a, a point from the author to say that we always have the power to inspire real change in through ourselves to other people anyway the end of little princess if you enjoyed please share with your friends i'm so sad to see them go goodbye goodbye goodbye